0: Welcome back to Range Anxiety, 30 years of automotive tuning experience in 30 minutes. I'm your host Martin Donnan and we're coming at you again today with another show. Today is a famous, iconic motorsport racing day in Australia. It's Bathurst Day. For those of you that don't know much about Bathurst that are listening from overseas, it is our pilgrimage of motorsport for the year. It's a fantastic track setting out back of rural New South Wales and Mount Panorama. Bathurst is the town. Uh, it's a five mile, five and a half mile long track, so it's a it's a big long track and it's got some daunting big sweeping hills across the top of it and a, and a big fast long straight known as Conrod straight And yeah, typically enough it's got a big bend in it. so Looks like some of the ping tuners have been out there on that one. But today is Bathurst day, and I'm sitting in the car driving along doing something else other than watching it. Why? Because I find the category V8 supercars pretty darn boring. Huh? How can that be? Five litre V8, petrol burning open trumpet monsters with a transaxle sequential shift. They're just too damn regulated though. They're all the same, they all run the same shock absorber, they all run the same chassis, they all run engines that are pretty much the same. They're all controlled, control, control, control. There's no real creativity in the sport, in my opinion. And there's only two brands, there's General Motors and there's Ford and that's that. So yeah, you know, apart from some different Um, body kits on on the two different brands of car even diffuser length is controlled everything's controlled and it is like often like watching paint dry i mean the only the only real thing that happens during the race is you know um, pit stop strategy and and driver change times can get you the win or the loss so yeah it's a bit of a yawn fest to tell you the truth i remember back to the good old days of motor racing where they used to get cars off the showroom floor and race them and you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday was the big motto. You can't even buy one of the brands, uh, (laughs) the Holden brand in Australia anymore, yet they're racing the things and they're about to be replaced by the latest gen Camaro, um, our Holdens, and they've just been taken off the market here as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty damn stupid to tell you the truth and fairly boring racing. But what it does do, anywhere there's a control category There's lots of cheating that goes on. And yeah, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. I'm not gonna say I know anything in particular because I don't, and I'd be lying if I said that I do, but there would be a ton of cheating going on in V8 supercars. The team bosses and the people behind it never like to refer to it as cheating, but rather interpretation of the rules. And we're all good at that, aren't we? You know, We interpret things to however we want them to be, and it's when you get caught, or when someone notices and you get um, holed up in front of the stewards or technical regulations get changed, that's when it's cheating. Righto. So what I'm about to tell you is 100% untrue. I've never been involved in any, of, in any of this. This show is entertainment only and there will be no names mentioned because I don't want people to be tarred with my untrue statements and claims that I'm about to make. Oh, look at that, a Ducati. Yep. I reckon they've cheated in a few of those in motorcycle racing as well. So, have I been involved in this? Absolutely, over the years. And pretty much the fledgling, there were several different classes that that really lent themselves to a good, solid, old-fashioned cheat. And one of them was production car racing. I used to love that, you know. So, you're allowed some freedoms. Like, you were allowed to change the ECU in these production cars within, I think, 10 centimeters of the original factory ECU connector, so everyone would go and would wire a Motec in or you know have something that had data logging and tune the engine. The only catch to that was it had to run all of the standard sensors. And you know, with the ECUs at the time, the, the car we were tuning back then was a Mitsubishi Evo 3 Lancer and it had a Carmen Vortex airflow meter, as Evos have had for many many years um and they were quite a difficult thing to interface to most aftermarket ECUs while they were a good reliable device they were sort of hard to process the signal properly and get good tuning out of an aftermarket ECU with the carmen vortex airflow meter in place but it had to remain there and it had to be used as the engine's main load signaler so of course when we set up the aftermarket ECU in this fairly successful Evo 3 that did race at Bathurst in one of the bigger production races that we have there We took a little bit of a liberty and introduced a map sensor, a manifold air pressure sensor into the system, which the MoTeC would talk to beautifully and allow you to map the engine really, really concisely from. So we couldn't show this being in the system. So what we did is we installed a boost gauge in the dash of the car, like an analogue boost gauge. It's because the driver liked to see how much boost he was or wasn't making when he could take his eyes off the track down Conrod or going up the hill. inside of that boost gauge we stuffed a map sensor and running wires up to that map sensor we did inside of the rubber line that was meant to be providing the air signal to the boost gauge so it's a bit of a tight squeeze the boost gauge did work and the engine controller worked perfectly looking at the manifold pressure sensor and gave us really fine accurate control of the engine mapping as you would imagine then this thing was a bloody bullet. It went well, and it, it won its class, I believe, and it was up there in the top five or something in this 12-hour race. It was a great event, and it was all great, till someone must have blabbed, or another team running a similar car kind of worked out what we were doing because our car was just going so much faster than theirs. So we were able to do things with the mapping that they weren't able to do. And, yeah... <sighs> the car got excluded from the results. They found the map sensor. There were probably many others in that same race that didn't get excluded from the results because their cheats didn't get found. I was a little bit, I was a little bit uh, ho-hum on that one. Oh well, you know, I I thought that was a pretty fair thing to do. The production racing bred some really, really good, 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 solid cheat concepts. Before that time, you had to retain the factory ECU and it had to remain unmodified. So, we were doing a fair bit in those days with um, Suzuki Swift GDIs, 1.3 liter little hot hatch. They were a fantastic car because they would just buzz all day, reasonably quickly too, and they were giant killers. If it rained, they'd go belting past all of the Commodores. If, if you know, while all these bigger cars were heavy on tires and heavy on fuel, and you know eating their brakes alive the Swifts would just stay out and out and out on the track and they would do about half the number of pit stops everybody else and they would actually go flat stick all day I remember there was a, a, a guy from Suzuki, oh, I forget what he was called it was a Suzuki Sport or action Suzuki race team a guy called Mark Brame I believe his name was and he I watched him win the Winton 500 up against all comers all production cars V8s Commodore V and Group A's all of this sort of stuff and he blitzed them around a tight little Winton racetrack in Victoria with a Suzuki Swift GDI, fantastic stuff. We never had much to do with with him or his cars, but we had plenty to do with plenty of other Suzuki Swift GDIs. Now they were limited to the stock ECU, but one of the big problems that car had was that it could rev about a thousand RPM harder than the factory ECU would let it and do so reliably and do so pretty much all day. So the race was on, the trick was on to extend the rev limiter in these things. So, hmm, how are we gonna do that? Cause we're not supposed to be, you know, opening the ECU and they will be looking and they will be listening um, for, for changes. So what we did, we'd invented something a company I owned at the time. We invented a, a technique of having multiple maps in the one factory ECU by putting in, uh, we could have up to four maps, I think, in the Suzuki Swift GDI or, no, it was, uh, yeah, four maps by using a 512K EEPROM and then putting four different programs on it stacked top to top and then having a switching system to switch the address lines high or low to use this segment of 128K or this segment of 128K or, or this segment or this segment. So it divided it up into four segments of 128K and we were doing this back in 1994. But how to switch it and how to hide it all? Well, that was the next big thing. These cars had to remain pretty stock and they had to retain stuff like their factory stereo in them. None like today's stereos that are all screens and, and you know, car plays and touch things. I mean, I'm driving a Tesla. That's probably one of the worst offenders of all. It is just a screen. These things had push button select for the different radio stations. And my partner at the time was a real smart electronics guy. He was actually an electronics engineer. And he actually used, he came up with a a device that would go inside the factory radio of the Swift GDI and it would use those radio select preset buttons to switch address lines on the EEPROM. So radio station one, and the radio would still work too by the way, which I thought was pretty cool. So radio station one was the standard map. Radio station two was like a fuel saver lean off map. Radio station three was like, Full aggression with a thousand rpm higher rev limiter map and i think map four was dead factory other than the higher rpm limiter so the driver could go along and where there was no one looking and no one uh, you know measuring the performance of the car and looking at where the rev limiter was kicking in they could actually drive along and switch channels up to you know <laughs> a higher rpm limiter and really give it its legs when no one was inside or sound but they just had to make sure that when they were driving past the pits or wherever there were groups of people, particularly spotters from other teams, that they would either A, short shift the engine, or B, switch it back to the standard map and bounce the rev limiter a few times to ensure that the other team spotters could see that the rev limiter was indeed in the standard spot. You know, they would know that 30 metres down the straight, from this point, it should bounce the limiter if it's in a standard position, and sure enough, it would. And then they'd tune into a different station, and away they'd go. Of course I'm making all of this up, right? Of course. I would never be involved in such a thing. But yeah, we did it, and it worked well, or did we do it? But there were, I think, three cars, three different teams running this same technology at the time, and none from us, and none of them actually knew that the others had it. So it it was funny as buggery, it really was. Good stuff and good times. Where it got a little bit more serious was uh, in a category, and again, I'm making all of this up, but this never happened. It was in a category called Formula Holden in Australia. So these were, you know, big F3000 or F3 chassis, I think they were from Europe, and they stuffed our Buick V6. You Americans used to get that motor in the 80s as a front-wheel drive thing, and we got it stuffed into the nose of our Commodore Holden GM product. And yeah, the motor turned north-south and adapted from front-wheel drive to rear wheel drive. Pretty cool thing. It was a rough old motor though. It was a coarse old thing. They're actually known colloquially in South Australia as, or in Australia, as a mang mang, because that's a noise they make when they hit the rev when they hit the rev limiter. Mang 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 mang, generally with one wheel smoking and some bogan, which is our Aussie version of a redneck driving it. But pretty cool. Pretty cool indeed. Um, yeah, I can't even see what these traffic lights are, are supposed to be doing here, it's crazy. I'm sort of a bit blinded. So anyway, the Mang Mang. These engines were built though for Formula Holden Racing. That When I say they were built, they had pistons and rods. I think ACL supplied all of the parts and they were wanting uh, engine dynos running a factory. They ran the factory ECU and they had to have the control category memcow or ROM in them. and this was a pretty rough old program too. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't one of the most beautiful bits of software you've ever seen. That's for sure. I read a couple of them. I thought, cheapest have a look at this." It was like one of those another one tunes, full of peaks and troughs and ridges. But anyway, the, the things ran after a fashion, and they made 330 and I don't know thirty horsepower or something out of out of two hundred odd cubic inches. They were two hundred and sixty. I don't know what they were. point eight liters. So it was natural that with a 6200 rpm rev limiter the things with their balance shafts removed and with a properly balanced crank in them and rods and pistons that the that the control engine was derived with they could rev a lot harder than that and in fact some engine dyno testing that i was never involved in with the rev limiter pumped up to 6800 rpm they made a lot more power mm. and more to the point when the driver shifted gears put them back into a better part of the RPM band so very very interesting so one of the competitors said you know what this was Adelaide Grand Prix time one of the competitors said to me you know what I just want I've heard you've done this I want one of these roms for my ECU sure enough he put it in his ECU and he went from rear of the field or you know back of the back of the mid pack up into the top view and people going where did this guy just get his speed from he didn't make it out of obvious did he And he got spotted out he got spotted out because you know guys took this formula pretty seriously it was our premier open wheeler formula and they took it pretty seriously and they had spotters everywhere and he just got picked up on Brabham straight at our Grand Prix circuit at the time as changing gears like 150 200 meters later than everybody else so it was pretty darn clear that he had a modified Memgau ROM in this thing, and sure enough, up in front of the stewards, pull the car apart, boom, take it out, disqualified. Mmm, okay. So everyone else that was thinking about that idea thought, oh, I would have loved that speed, but yeah, not if I'm gonna get kicked out, fined, barred, you know, discredited, whatever. So the whole concept of modifying or cheating with Formula Holdings in that regard died down a little. I'm sure there were plenty of other cheats going on. Till we got approached by another competitor. I'm not going to say who he is i don't really even know the guy anymore even if he exists it wasn't the car that we sponsored at the time that guy was straight as an arrow but someone else paid us to do a job because what happened with the computers is after this big cheating scandal i believe i believe and i may be wrong but who cares this is the story they all got chucked into a big bucket at the start of a meeting like a big bean and you had to pull out randomly select an ecu for your car right so if there was a modified one in there, it was like a lucky draw to see who got it. And in fact, they should have done that. Like, had a wildcard ECU that went a lot faster than anybody else's. That would have been super cool. But note, note, motor racing is full of boring, stuffy people that don't like having fun other than when they're winning on the track. So we got approached by someone that said, what about putting two ECUs in the car and having, like, a big Frankenstein switch that would switch all of the contacts from... All of the wiring connections, all like 60 of them, from one ECU to another one that was hidden inside the vehicle. And that hidden ECU would have a much higher rev limiter and a much better tune and it would be better on fuel and make more power and da 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 da. da. So we set about developing a solution for this. We got back on the engine dyno and we developed a nice a bit of software that made good grunt. It was something like 25, 30 horsepower up on anything else out there. Had the higher rev limiter. Very, very cool, very, very cool. And then my associates at the time got to work with putting this inside, this new ECU inside the chassis and effectively hiding it, which was done by putting it behind the driver, behind the fuel bladder. So the fuel system or the fuel tank effectively covered the secondary ECU in the car it was also um, it was a big contactor strip in there I'm not going to go into how so really actually I can't remember a lot of it but there was a big contactor strip in there that when you flick the switch which you would be pretty ballsy to do when it was running it could work but sometimes it would put the car into like a, a sink fault uh, when you know because momentarily at full noise You'd flick from one set of contactors to the other and when that second computer sort of fired into life, it could synchronize and get a crank trigger problem or an injector problem. So you had to be really careful and maybe have to flick the switch a couple of times, you know, with a big and away it went again. So, I mean, that wasn't half obvious either, but no one really picked up on it. This car ran for another three years with a hidden ECU in it and no one ever, ever picked up on it. I bet you someone's got that car now and they're converting it back to either a JUT V8, which is quite common, because there is no class of them here in Australia anymore, or restoring it as a beautiful old Formula Holden again, for historic racing, and have found this second (laughs) ECU when they've replaced the out-of-date bladder and just gone, what the hell is this? What were these guys doing? Well, drop me a line to DTECH at senet.com.au if you happen to own this car. D-T-E-C-H at SENET.com.au and I'll give you some insight into the classic old job that we did on it. But of course we never even did this, and of course I'm making it all up because I would never be involved in anything that was considered against the rules. All I had to say, well, I, I didn't consider it cheating because when I looked at the rules, the guy had to run the factory ECU with um, the with the control series memcal engine calibration and they didn't say you couldn't have two ECUs. They just didn't figure anyone was gonna do it. So yeah, I don't think that was against the spirit of the competition, I thought that. I think that was actually a a bloody great thing to do. We're quite proud of ourselves after that. Um, But of course, as as cheating in these series got more and more prevalent, um, there was was nothing to do but open up the rules. Like in production car racing with, you know, know, Group E and Nations Cup and all of that, it just became like a free-for-all in these production cars basically became race cars you know things like vipers that didn't have any brakes and you know we're getting passed by any 911 that was out there after about four laps they were allowed to have bigger brakes and you know the whole thing kind of got a bit bit messed up after a while you know and and kind of lost its shine and then then the nation's cup cars the Lamborghinis were getting so fast that you know there were some massive accidents when they were lapping the Swifts, was the speed differentials and disparity was too great So, yeah, that's a real shame that that series was allowed to die and just sort of wither on the vine, I suppose you could say, because it was great fun. And we just don't want, we do have a production class now, but it's the same old, there are price caps and things like that to try and keep the level playing field. And, you know, I don't want to see the same old Evo 10s beating the same old BMW six-cylinder turbos the whole time. I mean, it, it sure is a lot better the V8 supercar racing, but this is a lot more interesting because they're actually real cars. Hey, I can go and buy an ev 10 that's, you know, and put that tune in it, that, that, that's pretty cool, you but you, you can't do with the, you know, silly handmade supercar um, platform. So yeah, it, it's a shame we don't have that racing anymore. But one thing I can guarantee you from Formula One down, every category of motorsport has a category of cheating and an element of cheating, or interpretation of the rules, as they like to call it. And you know, Formula One probably has the cleverest of them because you know you're probably dealing with some of the most brilliant minds, motorsport minds in the world, without doubt, and some of the biggest budgets. But you know, even little, even little dirt circuit, speedway cars, you know, they still do the same things as well. In fact, I remember reading probably one of the masters of Australian motor racing, master engineer and team owner, Fred Gibson, when he was racing the turbo Nissans, or running them back in the 80s, from the Exa through to the, yep, Exa turbo with Christine Gibson driving, fantastic little car, through to the GDRs um, and the earlier Skylines with the FJ20s and HR31s with the RB20s in them, uh, these cars, well, I believe he has gone on record and talked about some of the funny business that they do, or they did back then, to make these cars even faster than they were. And yeah, good on, good on him. They were fast. You know, everyone was doing it. He's just actually spoken about it. Um, you know, and there are the famous stories of nitrous hidden in roll cages, and and the the very very famous eight, you know, five percent smaller version of a NASCAR that. Because it was tiny bit smaller in every dimension, had a lot less drag, so it would go through the, go it would cut through the air and just be much faster. Till it, you know that's why they came up with silhouette that all cars have to drive through and fit through now, and touch. Um, and then of course the most famous of them all was the Gurney flap from Dan Gurney in in the States, which was put on the rear wing. You know it's that little right angled device that goes on the wing, the little lip on the back that sticks straight up. It's very short, you know, there's a formula for working out the best height or cord for the um, Gurney flat. And he put that on the car knowing exactly that what it was going to do after some intense testing. And uh, <laughs> told everyone it was there to actually push on. So when they were pushing the car, it was just a push aid. So no one thought anything about it for a little while until they realised, oh dear, Gurney's cars are going a lot quicker than ours what the hell's going on here Billy Bob so there you go there's a bit of an insight on about day in Australia into into some of the interpretation of the rules and cheating innovations involved in our motorsport and some world motorsport of course like I said I've never had anything to do with any of this and I made all of this up for your listening pleasure righto? <laughs> you can believe what you want that there was some detail in some of that wasn't there I have even more of these, I think, stories, if I cast my mind back. There is even some cooler stuff to talk about when it comes to interpretation of the rules, but we'll save that for another episode. Time's up, and thank you for listening into to Range Anxiety.